So this is um, the reading from Ezra, chapter 1. Uh, I'm going to read from verse 1 to 11. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfil the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. This is what King Cyrus, Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. And may be their God, may their God be with them. And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbours assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the freewill offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had, brought, had them brought by Mithridath to the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. Other articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and of silver. Shesbazar brought them all, brought all these along with the exiles when they came up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Thank you, Andrew. Well, this morning we begin a sermon series on Ezra Nehemiah. And um, in our Bibles, they're two books, but actually they're one book. Um, it was always one book, and then uh, the the Latin Bible, through a series of debates, decided to separate them. And then, interestingly, the, the uh, rabbis followed the lead in the 17th century, so now we have it as two books, but you really are meant to read them as one. And you'll see, as you do, if you do read them, that the characters all overlap and the stories all overlap, and it's, it makes sense that it's one book. And the book of Ezra opens on an exciting note. It opens with the announcement of a new beginning. A new beginning is about to occur for the Israelites who had been living in exile in Babylon for about 50 years. Um, and the news of this new beginning was very exciting. Um, new beginnings are exciting, especially when you have been struggling for a long time. We experienced this in Australia after the First World War and we've never forgotten it. Australia had been at war fighting with the Allied armies and then 59,357 mostly young Australians had died at battle. 
There was barely a family on the continent who had not been impacted by the tragedy. It's very hard for us to know what that's like now, these years later, but back then it was so significant. Then at 11am on the 11th of November 1918, the guns on the Western Front fell silent after more than four years of continuous warfare. The Allies had driven the German invaders back. In November, the Germans called for an armistice so as to secure a peace settlement and unconditionally surrendered. And entire nations cheered on the streets about this. And um, that day became, on the 11th of November, Armistice Day, and now we call it Remembrance Day. Imagine what it would have been like to live through that, to have most of your friends and family have people die, be affected. Every town was affected across Australia. The world had been tearing itself apart, but now the fighting was over. A new life could begin again. A new life without war and tragedy until the next war came along. These kinds of new beginning moments become key turning points in history. The world moves in a new direction. And one of the reasons new beginnings speak so profoundly to us is because God is the God of new beginnings. The Bible says that all of creation is longing for a new beginning. Paul writes in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. When we experience the elation of a new beginning, perhaps it's a new relationship or a new job or a fresh new start after a time of difficulty, the birth of a child maybe, the end of a uni course. At those moments we get a taste, a little glimpse of the glory that will be revealed in us. Our God is the God of new beginnings. Paul says the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And God hears our groaning. And this theme runs throughout the Bible. And it's present here in Ezra chapter 1. Ezra 1 opens with, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. I'm going to make two points this morning in my sermon. The first point is that God achieves his plans by keeping faithful to his good and trustworthy word. And the second point is that God works in people and communities to start something new. So let's look at the first point. God achieves his plans by keeping faithful to his good and trustworthy word. The thing is, while God's word is good and trustworthy, the Israelites had turned their back on it. What had they done? They'd refused to pay attention to God. They were stubborn and had covered their ears. They worshipped pagan gods. They even sacrificed children to these pagan gods. And they were spiritually and morally outrageous. Their hearts, according to Zechariah, said, he said, their hearts were as hard as flint. They didn't obey God's law. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. What did God do? Well, Zechariah tells us, God says, I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind them was so desolate 
that no one travelled through it. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Time and time again, God had tried with Israel to get through to them. But they were so corrupt and hedonistic and cynical towards his prophets that God had to intervene and give them all into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, it says in 2 Chronicles 36. Like the Israelites, if we turn our back on God's word, and if we don't believe it, if we don't trust it, then there are dire consequences for us. God doesn't necessarily send us into physical exile, but he can and does send us into spiritual and emotional exile. He, in the words of Romans, Paul, Romans chapter 1, he hands us over to our sin. Paul writes in Romans 1, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and weakness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Paul explains that when people are deprived of the knowledge of God, when they stop trusting in God, they become depraved and embrace idolatry, immorality, impurity and inhumanity. So take God's word seriously. Read it, learn it, understand it, trust it, obey it, live it. If you're a parent, teach it to your kids. To do so will lead you to live the best life that you can live and will bring glory to God, which is really what the most important thing is. You might have read in the news this week about the crisis in the Anglican Church, the, the so-called split in the Anglican Church is the way it's being reported. Uh, not so much a split. There's one church that started up in Brisbane and that one church has one bishop. So it's not really a split, more like a new de- denomination has started that's calling itself Anglican. And this new diocese that has been established probably won't affect most churches in Australia, most of the Anglican churches. It certainly won't affect us. Um, And I'd be very surprised if many clergy quit their jobs in the next few months or years to join up, although it might happen. The real crisis that we have in the Diocese of Melbourne uh, right now is that there are many, many churches that are completely unviable. They have shrunk in numbers to the point where they have just a small group of people, maybe 10 or 12 on a Sunday, that keep the thing going. And most of those people will be over 70 and struggling to do all the the, um, roles that the church requires, like church council and wardens and child safety officer and and all the extra treasurer. Um, They're just struggling. They might be financially able to sustain because they've got trust funds and different investment or property that they can get money from, but these churches are basically struggling to stay up. And sadly, in many of these churches, they abandoned God's Word. They stopped teaching the Bible. They stopped trusting in God's Word, and they became more like a club for Anglicans, you know, a club for people who just like Anglican culture, which is a bit sad. You'll be pleased to know... I. I'm not going to quit my job and leave and join this new diocese of the Southern Cross, but I do sympathise to some extent with what they're trying to do in trying to make God's word central to the Anglican Church again. If you're part of this church, you're part of a church that trusts in God's word. We study it, we teach it, and we live by it. God's word is what gives us life. When you abandon God's word, you spiritually starve and you become foolish. The consequence for Israel was that God had sent them into exile 
for, well, it ended up being 70 years all, all up. They lived in a foreign land, away from their home country. They experienced oppression at different times, but then at other times, some of them actually prospered under the rule of the Babylonian king, kings. Regardless of how friendly or evil the king was, though, either way, they could not practice their faith in the way that they wanted. And you have to remember, being away from their homeland was more significant than it is for you and me. You might think, if I was made to live in Moscow, whether I lived in Melbourne or Moscow, I could be a Christian. It doesn't make a difference to me. But for the Israelites, they had a tie to their land. It was deeper and more spiritually significant than any way we can imagine. Similar, I I think it's the closest similarity that I can think of is to the way Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are tied to the land. For them to be away from their land, ache, they ache. They want to be home. For the Israelites, the Jerusalem and the temple in it had been destroyed. But God had not abandoned his people. He didn't leave them dead in their sin. He didn't leave them in exile. He is a God of new beginnings. So Israel could have hope. If you look in the Isaiah chapters 41 and 45, you read that God had promised that one day, while they were in exile, someone would be stirred up from the east to take over the nations, and that one would be called Cyrus. And Cyrus would be raised up to rebuild Jerusalem. And Ezra 1 shows us that around 538 BC, God's word in Isaiah was fulfilled. As Isaiah prophesied, the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persian Empire and King Cyrus of Persia became the ruler over the exiled Israelites. The sovereign God who rules over history provided King Cyrus to enable the exiles to return to Jerusalem. But this wasn't just a fulfilment of Isaiah, it was also a fulfilment of the prophecy of Jeremiah. And that's what Ezra says in the opening verse, to fulfill the the word of Jeremiah, the prophecy of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah said that after the exile, God would renew the covenant and their covenant and transform their hearts. Jeremiah 31 famously says that God would place his word on their heart so that they would follow him fully, that he would return them to their land and send a Messiah from the line of David. And then all the nations would know that Israel's God is the true God. And even in Jeremiah 50 and 51, it says that God would judge Babylon and this is, how, this is what had happened when he raised up the Persian army to take over them. So this first sentence of Ezra is saying that this new messianic era had begun. It had started to happen. So if you're reading it and you're a Hebrew person, you know your Bible really well and you know the Isaiah reference and you know the Jerusalem reference, you know all of what that first verse means, you're excited, you're, saying, you're thinking to yourself, what's going to happen next? Well, so far we've seen that God achieves his plans by keeping faithful to his good and trustworthy word. And secondly, what we're going to see is that God works in people and communities to start start something new. If Ezra chapter 1 is like a play where God's the director of the play, then the two kind of key roles in the play are Cyrus, the king, and also the Hebrew people. So let's look at these two characters. First, there's Cyrus. God spoke to him so as to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. 
Cyrus proclaimed to all the people in the realm what God had told him, and, and he put it in writing saying, the Lord, the, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. He called God, Israel's God Lord. It's not, we're not sure if that means he converted to becoming a Jew. Probably not. More like, think of it this way, God is using him to fulfill his plans and Cyrus is responding. And he's, like, he's this Persian king. He's probably a polytheist and he's being diplomatic, so he's using the language of the Hebrew people. And he's being savvy. Either way, he's responding to God's prompting. And his mission from God is to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. See, God can use anyone for his purposes. He's even, it talks about in the Old Testament how God raised up a Babylonian army to achieve his plans. Paul writes in Romans 13 that God even uses pagan rulers as his servants. And because this is true, he can use you too. Whether you realise it or not, he may choose you to achieve his purposes. Sometimes there's been non-Christians that have helped facilitate the church plants, the two church plants here at Mary Creek. When we first moved into the school here at Clifton Hill, they, there were several teachers in the school that we encountered who um, were not churchgoers but were sympathetic to the church cause and very friendly and opened doors for us and enabled us to be able to do what we were doing. I even had the curious thing that on the, on the leadership team of the church plant, we had a person who was there for the whole journey and then... Um, coming to all the meetings and then we launched and had like two services and then that person left and went back to their original church. Now, I could have interpreted that as that person's just flaky. Why would you be on the leadership team and then just leave and not stay around? I could have interpreted it that way or another way I could interpret it was that perhaps God provided that person to be part of the journey to help us to think in a certain way and, and to have certain priorities. In the process of planning Fairfield, there were several key people along the way who played roles in helping us get off the ground. There are different congregation members in the South Darabin Parish who, who were responsible for the church in Fairfield who were enablers. They, they um, were saying yes to things and agreeing with the bishop and, and trying to make this possible. There was Theo, the cafe owner next door to St Paul's Fairfield, who was... Um, quite positive and encouraging and enabled us to, you know, uh, to set up a coffee card thing where people could come and get free coffees at his cafe as a promotion for the church. Even the lady who ran the yoga studio in the church didn't put up a fight when it was time for her to leave. But the true hero of the Fairfield plant was not Theo, the cafe owner. It was not Patrick or Emma or me or Stephanie, Erin and Minkow wardens. The true hero of the church plant story is God. We, or should I say us, we're just God's servants. In the same way, in Ezra 1, God is the true hero in this story and Cyrus is his servant. It wasn't just Cyrus who, who God used to achieve his purposes, but the Hebrew people as well. Cyrus continues in verse 3, any of his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. 
And we find out in verse 5, it was the people from Judah, the tribe of Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites who, who go. Their job was so important. They were going to rebuild the temple. We've got used to this idea at Mary Creek, especially here at Clifton Hill, that buildings don't matter so much. We've been able to worship in a school hall. But the temple of the Lord was significant. It was a gift of God. It was where God's name dwelt, where God lived among his people. It was a place for God's glorious presence. It was the location of the Ark of the Covenant and the words of the law were stored there. It was where sacrifices occurred for the sins of individuals and for the corporate sins of all Israel. Is where they prayed and received forgiveness. Even Gentile foreigners could worship there and God would hear their prayer. The temple also was a sign of Christ to come. It promised the coming presence of God in Christ who would be the perfect priest and the perfect sacrifice. Through his atoning death, the people would receive once for all forgiveness for their sins. He would one day come to earth and dwell among the people. Or as it says in John 1, he would tabernacle. He would be the temple among the people. So the bricks and mortar temple that they were going to rebuild was actually pointing forward to the the flesh, son of God temple, that is Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection and ascension, God would be able to send his Holy Spirit to fill the church and, and that Holy Spirit would take up residence in his people so that Christians would become the new temple of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but the temple pointed forward to the ultimate end of time where God and his people would dwell together in the new heavens and the new earth. So as you can see, this project of rebuilding the temple is so significant. And how amazing is it that God would use just people, average people living in exile to do such extraordinary things. And friends, if God is using you to build his church here at Mary Creek, you are also involved in an extraordinary activity. When you get up early to pray for us, when you arrive to do set up here on church, or when you go and meet a person in their home and do pastoral care, you are involved in eternal work. Cyrus continued in verse 4, And in any locality where survivors may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with freewill offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. See, many of the people prospered in Babylon. You can see that in the book of Daniel, how Daniel himself uh, prospered. And um, so there were people who had started businesses and made money. And so now King Cyrus is saying, use your resources to help build the temple. And in verse 6, it says that all their neighbours helped out with providing what was needed. Verses 7 to 11 showed how Cyrus released all the treasures that had been looted by uh, uh, the Babylonians and stored in their treasury and sent it all back to be put in the new temple. And this illustrates an important pattern in the Bible, that when God's people are involved in God's work, we are to use our resources. We give our time our skills, our money, so as to help enable ministry and mission. And I've been excited by all the new people um, at our church joining to do different ministries and be on teams. It's so encouraging. We were excited this morning um, 
about Kara and Karen going up to lead the children's ministry. These are new team members for the children's ministry. Um, and there's lots of different people helping out in different ways. In a similar way, I am so grateful for the generous giving of this church. And I'd like to invite you, if you are calling Mary Creek your home, to become financial givers today. The details for how to do that are on the back of your booklet. It's part of following in that pattern of what the Hebrew people did two and a half thousand years ago to use your resources um, to help build God's kingdom and do this eternal work. Well, the opening of Ezra and Nehemiah is about new beginnings. It's about God granting his people a fresh new start. It's about God keeping his promises and staying true to his word. It's about God working in all kinds of people to start something new. And in the opening verse of Ezra chapter 1, it refers to the way Cyrus fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah. And the most important thing that Jeremiah said, well, the thing that we talk about the most that Jeremiah said comes from chapter 31, verse 31, which was that what God would do is ultimately change people's hearts so that they would turn to him. They'd turn their hearts from flint to flesh. Now, that day had not yet actually arrived. That day wouldn't come until Pentecost when God would send his Holy Spirit to the church. But already we're seeing glimpses of that, glimpses of changed hearts. God changed Cyrus's heart. He changed his people's hearts too, giving them courage to leave their homes in exile and return to their true spiritual home in Jerusalem. This was like a second exodus for Egypt, from Egypt. But this time, the miracles weren't external miracles like plagues of frogs and locusts, but internal miracles hearts being changed. And while this was not Pentecost, it pointed to Pentecost, when God would take his people's hearts and write his word on their hearts. At that future time, which has now happened, God would shine his light in our hearts to give us the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ, as it says in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. As we begin this journey through Ezra and Nehemiah, let me invite you to put your trust in the God of new beginnings. Trust in the God whose word is true and powerful. Trust in God who is calling you to get involved. Trust in the true temple, the true priest, the true sacrifice, Jesus Christ, who is also God's true and better Cyrus. Say yes to Jesus so that your heart can be changed from stone to flesh. Amen.